Hello and welcome to Imaginary Advice. My name is Ross Sutherland. If you don't know, I write all the episodes of the program. I am incredibly lucky that I get to do what I love for a living. I, 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 I love making imaginary advice. But also, <clears throat> I am going insane from stress and tiredness. Last week, I put Savlon on my toothbrush. I'll be honest, the only thing that keeps me going right now are my patron supporters. This podcast would have stopped by now if it wasn't for my patron supporters. I like to think of them uh, a little bit like a gang from the Warriors uh, striding with me side by side in uh, in matching imaginary advice jean jackets as we bop our way home. If you sign up to Patreon, you get access to a whole bunch of stuff, including a documentary I made about Howard from the Halifax adverts. Also, other bonus episodes and, um, and like, much longer interviews. So, if you like the podcast and you want it to continue, help me out. You just got to go to Patreon. Dot com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n patron.com forward slash ross g sutherland i uh i really want to keep making this thing you guys okay bye 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 uh here's a thought i had recently um, pretty much every time a Hollywood movie contains a scene where someone reads a poem, that poem seems to function as if it were a magic spell. But which I mean, reading a poem in a Hollywood film seems to immediately and irrevocably change the reality of that film. I should give you some examples. Let's take... Truly, madly, deeply. How's your Spanish? Juliet Stevenson is grieving over the recent death of her boyfriend, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman returns as a ghost to ease her through the process of letting go. Maybe it's all in her mind. Maybe ghosts are real. Doesn't matter. At the end, Alan Rickman asks Juliet Stevenson to translate a Pablo Neruda poem. There's a poem I wanted you to translate. Okay. A poem about what survives after death. Perdoname. Forgive me. Si tu no vive. Poem about taking love with you, but going on. Amor mio, si tu te has muerto. If you, beloved, my love, if you have died. Hacia donde tu duermes. My feet will want to march to where you are sleeping. Your accent's terrible. So this poem will be over soon. And then Alan Rickman's going to disappear. The poem, as used here, is uh, is a kind of banishing spell. The ghost is, is giving the poem to her for her to use back against him. Pero 
he's putting the words into her mouth because saying the words aloud stirs the truth of the poem within her. It reshapes her thoughts and therefore reshapes her reality. My feet will want to march to where you are sleeping, but I shall go on living. The poem didn't just describe the world, it changed the world almost immediately. See, the thing is, time and time again, I see examples of this. I've got a big stack of DVDs teetering on the edge of my bookcase over there, and every single one of them has got a post-it note stuck on the front of it. Hang on, let me... Here we go. Uh, What's on the top here? Uh, Awakenings. Summoning spell. Rilke. Uh, She's all that. Improvised chanting to reveal inner truths. Um, Autumn in New York. Um, Emily Dickinson protection spell. Must love dogs. Love spell. It's usually a love spell, actually. Most of them are love spell. It's usually E.E. Cummings. Hollywood loves E.E. Cummings for a seduction spell. More than any other poet in the history of cinema, E.E. Cummings turned out to be pure witchcraft Michael Caine wants to sleep with his sister-in-law what does he do? gives her a book of E.E. Cummings and it works too we see the poem like in real time cracking people open changing them all the speaker has to do is chant a couple of unusual metaphors draw on some kind of ancient esoteric knowledge and like that the person on the other end of the incantation is transformed at the start of the poem they're one person by the end they've become someone else you take a poem and then you embed that poem inside a story and it becomes a spell it's like dropping a stick into a fast flowing river movies are uh, they're so accelerated Everything has narrative purpose. Everything the camera captures, we see not only for what it is, but also for what it does. Maybe, in a weird way, this is cinema trying to capture the whole purpose of art in a little way. It's saying, look here, look in this little example, look how art transforms us. When someone reads a Yeats poem in the film Must Love Dogs and Diane Lane hears that poem and whoop, immediately decides to do a U-turn vis-a-vis dating John Cusack right that there that is a metaphor for the power of all art this is what art can do it can it can change you it's just a cinema moves so fast that the whole transformation comes across as supernatural daydream delusion limousine eyelash oh baby with your pretty face I'm a delusion angel I'm a fantasy parade I want you to know what I think. Don't want you to guess anymore. You have no idea where I came from. You have no idea where we're going. Lodged in life, like branches in the river, flowing downstream, caught in the current. I carry you. You'll carry me. That's how it could be. Don't you know me? Don't you know me by now? Compare any of these scenes from Hollywood movies to, to the 
to the real world <laughs> effect of, of of poetry, which uh, you know just feels so passive and abstracted. In the uh, in the twenty odd years that I've been writing poetry, I don't really feel as if a single poem that I've written has uh, has actively changed the world around me. I mean, in real life, the majority of poems are read aloud in subsidised arts theatres or, you know, small vegan cafes. When I read a poem to a room full of patient and charitable vegans, it doesn't feel like spell casting to me. But, but like, I, I, I don't think that means that Hollywood has got it wrong. I, I think, actually, there is something that we can learn from Hollywood's weird funhouse mirror version of poetry. I, I love the idea of poems working like magic spells, this kind of accelerationist take on the art form. I'm not saying that, uh, that you know, I want to try and write a, a poem that can bring someone out of a coma or, you know, or can hypnotise someone into falling in love with me. But maybe, though, if, 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 I, if I thought more about the function of a poem, not necessarily what the poem was, but what the poem could do, then maybe I could borrow a bit of that, that supernatural spell poetry that we see on the big screen. Rather than feel helpless, I could feel a greater connection to the world around me. I could feel just a little bit more that uh, my poetry was helping me affect my environment. I mean, that's easy to say, isn't it? But uh, how do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I don't think... The answer is in is in film. Uh, and I don't think the answer is necessarily in poetry either. I, I think the real knowledge and experience that I'm after is, is in real life spellcraft, uh, which is why I turned to, uh, to an old friend of mine, Dr. Al Cummings. Hello. For years, I've been referring to him as my mate, the wizard, <laughs> though he described himself a little differently. I am a a kind of a consultant sorcerer uh, for various uh, people. I was a semi-professional performance poet for a while, which is, is, is how we met. But my doctorate is in the history of magic, uh, and so I kind of married these two fields. I'm a sort of wizard for hire of sorts, <laughs> uh, I suppose. I've been thinking I would really love to write a poem which had this incredibly specific purpose. It had a kind of agency to it. Me and my girlfriend, we've been thinking about having a baby, like, maybe next year. But I find it almost impossible to think about being a dad without immediately becoming despondent about money. If there was a way that I could write something ritualistically which would help me unblock that, that would be something, I don't know, what would be the things to kind of keep in mind when thinking about writing a poem, but through this occult lens? Uh, OK, uh, there are a couple of things then. Um, I, I call it devotional, but uh, the theurgic, the idea of uh, learning how to resonate with, uh, like a, for want of a better term, like a higher power of some kind, finding a, an icon or something that can inspire you uh, with the, the, the virtues and the things that you're attempting to um, cultivate in yourself. So... That could be anything from, um, you know, people uh, like the the patron saint. Uh, one of the patron saints of fathers is is Saint Joseph, obviously. And so uh, I know some people who have a kind of folk Catholic practice who 
um, you know, venerate St. Joseph, do special stuff on St. Joseph's Day, um, you know, donate to um, uh, various, like, children's charities like in the name of the saint uh, and, and do things like that. But that could also be um, from, a, from a more, like, chaos magic angle, uh, the, the kind of punk of, of occultism. Uh, you know, that could be enshrining a cool TV dad that you grew up with uh, that, that, you know, that you think is awesome and, uh, and, and, you know, spending time at that little shrine that you've made for them and, and, and trying to do that just before you go to sleep so you possibly, like, dream of this figure coming to you and, and, and potentially, like, giving you advice or giving you a useful dream. Gotcha. This is it. It's about finding icons. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's, that, that's one angle that, that people use, yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, and, and, and resonate with and draw strength from that kind of... Uh, inspiration is the easiest way of, of putting it, but inspiration itself is, is a pretty occult concept. The idea of um, spire, the the breath and the breath of God, God or the divine or or, or uh, you know um, nature uh, breathing something into you um, that that moves you in some way, uh, moves you forward, moves you emotionally, uh, moves you into the place that you'd like to be. Acknowledging that that bringing a life into the world is a is is a big deal and wanting to do it properly might require courage. And there's a variety of of magics that are around helping people uh, feel more courageous. Uh, one of the the simplest is the use of borage, which in various medieval accents uh, rhymes with courage. And so we use something that rhymes with that thing. That rhyme is considered a uh, a, a similitude, a, a, a sympathy of some sort. It also rhymes with orange. Mm. So then, mm. I mean, like, like um, that's that's got a like that, you know. Yeah, you've just you've just broken the conventions of 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 of, uh, of, of the of alleged uh, rhyming. I'm transgressing uh, yeah. already, mate. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some some words are, are considered magical, right? Uh, most typically, like the names of spirits or the names of God. Or if we think about the idea of uh, knowing something's true name, gives you some kind of sense of, um, if not authority over it, then at least the ability to call it effectively, and then it has to come. And this is an underlying uh, occult idea that names and words aren't necessarily arbitrary signifiers, but are actually like part of the named thing, and that they can thus be manipulated to um, to, to to do stuff for you and with you uh, as well. It doesn't have to be that kind of uh, negative form of manipulation. But we also find this idea of magical words in um, the idea of um, of magical languages, of natural languages that are thought to express the essence of things, or uh, Adamic languages, the original language spoken in the Garden of Eden, or angelical languages, or any other kinds of notions of the native tongue of God. Uh, and then we just have words that uh, they're sometimes called barbarous words or, or vocus magicae, uh, and these are uh, literally just kind of like passwords that we don't know what they mean anymore, but we just know that they're magic, and they're literally sort of thought of as uh, sometimes as like the the sort of cheat codes for reality. So you can just say these words um, in some uh, notions of how this works. Al, can uh, the you main... share any of these words? Can, like, can uh, we? Are we allowed to, to 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 kind of like know these words, or are they kind of like passed in in a? in kind of like hushed terms. Can you hear the excitement in my voice here? Oh, sure. No, I mean, they, 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 they can be. Al went on to tell me some of the uh, the magical cheat codes that he uses in rituals. Mostly he uses a language called Enochian, which was created through a series of seances conducted by Dr John Dee at the end of the 16th century. Dee believed that he was communing with angels and tried to document their entire language. I guess you could call it native angel 
There's a passage which I use for libation stuff, which goes, Amipsi naz af af od deluga zizop zalida kaoski, which is is also translated by the angels conveniently, which uh, <laughs> usually means something like, I have fastened pillars of gladness 19 and given them vessels with which to water the earth. One of the big principles of Western forms of magic is this idea of reflection, as above, so below. In being like something, that thing moves towards you and is more inclined to lend you some of its power. Like moves to like, and so if you act uh, in a manner that evokes the thing, right? Even though our very language of talking about this is informed by like a, a magical grammar, right? If, if you're speaking evocatively, uh, which is not just about the words, but like how you're saying it and where you're saying it and when you're saying it, and, and I guess to who as well, uh, that these kinds of things inform how to speak effectively and how to be charming to the universe as well. So now, a week later, I'm um, heading to the park near my house. A reason, um, if I was a dad right now, then this park is definitely where I would be spending a lot of my time. This is the, uh, the perfect spot to reflect as above, so below. Okay. So I sit on the bench at the top of the park and I write my poem. Or maybe I should call it a spell, I don't know. On the back of my hand, I've written four words of John Dee's Enochian language. I've tried to design an angelic phrase for myself using the help of the internet. There on my hand, my own private cheat code for reality. The sun's going down as I prepare to read the poem, and I find myself thinking back to those poems in Hollywood films. As I read this poem... Am I going to get that same feeling? Is the soundtrack going to soar behind me as the words take hold? I am here imagining myself as a dad. I am not a dad as yet, but as I speak these words here in this park, I'm trying to let myself be dad-shaped. Trying on my fictional dadness, the same way a clay pigeon shooter has to imagine the skeet ahead of where it is. Aim at the skeet itself, you will always be too late. So today I am aiming for where I will be instead of where I am. Even though I just inadvertently compared fatherhood to shooting myself, all bad poetry will be forgiven. I could even go as far to imagine this bollard here as my infant child. I'm proud of you. All the same, I think it is best if we just let the meaning of things be the things themselves. As if the future was just a photograph yet to be taken. A tiny human in a red snowsuit Standing triumphant atop the playground slide. The slide that scares all children into falling in love with it. It took such a long time to write that last sentence that the image already feels dated. Like an anecdote I tell every Christmas. I want to take a second 
to remember the Adams family and the rigorous internal logic of their happiness. Every week, rather than grow or change, the show just found new ways to reveal their perfection to us. All conflicts pushed to the outside. I am imagining myself on this bench again, maybe two years from now, maybe more. This poem now written in the trees, written in the frost, in my breath, written in you, bollard-sized human being, reaching towards me as I reach towards you. I will take you home and transfer you into pyjamas. Pyjamas patterned with eight pentacles, the language of angels embroidered onto your back like your bowling team. Paid Akaro Abramig Gemaganza, tiny pyjamas of orange, the colour of the sky we will both grow into. This poem written upon it. So, um, this month's episode was originally broadcast on Shortcuts on Radio 4 uh, in a slightly different format. This is a kind of rejigged version. Um, the original was produced by Eleanor McDowell for Falling Tree Productions. And as always, uh, a huge thanks to Falling Tree for allowing me to repost a piece here. Okay, bye. <laughs>